know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry or the future. said, and today I walk beside him, for he knows what is ahead, many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know Scripture reading is from Acts chapter 21, verse 15 through 26. And after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Mason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this, that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads. 
and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Amen. We're going to go ahead and dismiss the kids ages four years old through fourth grade for Children's Church. Four years old through fourth grade. We are picking back up in our series through the book of, of Acts. We've got a few chapters left, and uh, it's going to go into the new year, obviously. And I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that we finished, finished going through the book of Acts, because there are a lot of important lessons that we see in these last few chapters of the book of Acts. And as we get into these last few chapters, it's going to be harder for us to develop our theme on how the church, what the church looked like in the book of Acts, because the focus is going to shift primarily to the Apostle Paul. And yet, I still think there are a lot we can learn as, as a church from this man in this text. And when you think about churches, churches are kind of, they're weird organizations, right? I mean, um, they're not like schools, they're not like uh, uh, golf clubs or anything. I don't, do, I, do you go to a golf club ever? No, okay. No, so I've never been to a golf club. I don't know what they're like. But churches, churches are something that, that is, it's kind of a bird of its own. It's something different than what you would normally expect in society. And there's a lot of different groups of people with different strange personalities. Have you ever come across this, strange people in, in the churches? You know, so, and to be honest, I'm one of those, okay? So, but the church is a group of people who, they have different ways of, of thinking, different ways of acting, different personalities, different, uh, uh, different looks, different, uh, different abilities, and yet they're all kind of put together into the same group. Because there's one thing that holds them together, and that is our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ideally, that's, that's what ties a church together. And with a lot of times, though, when churches aren't functioning the way that they should, there's, there's bickering. Or there's the potential for tension in a church. And, and I think a lot of churches have gotten a bad rap because of this. But to be honest, anytime you get two people together, there's the potential for tension, isn't there, right? Any organization, when you get two people together, there's going to be some kind of disagreement at some point. I heard a story once about a, a Baptist who was marooned alone on an uncharted island. Sounds like paradise. No, okay. So, <laughs> but he lived there for several years before a passing ship happened to see his fire one night and changed course to investigate. When some of the crew made their way by boat to the island, they found the man and three huts that he had built. They asked him, what are these three huts? And he answered, one is where I live and one is where I go to church. When they asked him where the hut was, he says, oh, that's, that's the one where I used to go to church. Okay? So we, we have this tendency to split off and to break off from one another because we just, we can't get along. And this guy couldn't even get along with himself. You know, so, but... <laughs> But the church is supposed to be a loving, a healing, an edifying place that brings glory to God, is it not? And too often it falls short of that vision because, let's face it, we're all a bunch of fallen human beings. We will never perfectly reach that goal. 
will never be able to be everything that the church is supposed to be, but we should be striving for that. So it's inevitable that we're going to have issues between people, right? And if you look, if you're looking for a perfect church, you won't find it. And if you do, you join it, it won't be perfect anymore, okay? Perfect church has nobody in it, right? Okay, so it's kind of like the minister who says, I love the ministry, I just hate the people, right? Okay, so what's the point, you know? But there are no perfect people in churches. In fact, what is the church even for? What is its primary purpose? It is to help to heal and to grow people who have problems. The very, that's inherent to the fact that we have church is the fact that we all have issues, and that's why we're here. We're here to help each other to glorify God through our issues. And so if a church is going to survive, we need to know how to deal with the tensions and the conflicts that do come up inevitably between people. <clears throat> As I said, our main, main goal in looking through the book of Acts is to trace how the church should be. But this section begins the ending of the book of Acts. As Paul is arrested, he is tried, and he's brought to Rome. And when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, things aren't the way that he expected them to be. The title of today's message is going to be For the Sake of Unity. For the Sake of Unity. We're going to start reading in verse number 17. Verse 17 says, And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. So we've seen Paul has been making his way back toward Jerusalem and he wants to get there before Pentecost comes. But to give you some background to this chapter and the environment of Jerusalem at the time, we need to understand that Jerusalem at, at this moment was a hotbed of xenophobia. What I mean by that is they didn't like outsiders, okay, at the time. And under Felix, they were on the verge of revolt, okay? Things were not pleasant in the city of Jerusalem. One historian speaking about the governors of Jerusalem commented that they seemed to not know how to avoid inciting the Jews to riot. They only had like one good governor and all the governors that they had. If they would just leave the Jewish religion alone, things would have been fine in, in Jerusalem, but they couldn't do that. And so there was always this, this desire to fight back against the Romans that was present. And because of that, Jewish people looked with skepticism and did not, were not favorable towards people that were outside of their own people group. And when Paul first arrives in Jerusalem, he is greeted with warmth and joy, it would seem, right? He's, it says here that they received him, they received us gladly. Um, probably brothers who knew him from the last time he was there met him at the gates. But the next morning, Paul is going to have a formal meeting with James, who is the head of the church, and the elders there. And this, this is where things begin to surface, that things aren't as they would seem. Sometimes it's easy to mask the tension that's there. We put on a smile, and we go and we shake hands with that person that we really want to punch in the face, right? You ever have that? Okay. <laughs> okay. And, and, but, but we put on this facade to make things seem differently than they are. And the church, they're, they're all excited to have Paul, but there's something brewing underneath the, surf, the surface. Verses 19 through 20 kind of give us our first glimpse into that. Verse 19 says, And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. So here Paul comes and he gives a report to the church. 
He says, look at all the things that God is doing among the Gentiles through, through our ministry. But the problem is already hinted at in these verses. When the elders respond, when they reply back to Paul about everything that God has done, notice, notice what they say. Their response is, haven't you seen the thousands, brother, here who have, who have come to believe? Right? They, they, they automatically say, look at all these Jews who've believed as well. But there's a subtext here, because if you notice, the last line it says, they are all zealous of the law. Basically, they are saying, Paul, there have been a lot of people who have believed here too, and they are all passionate about the law, hint, hint, and there's a problem because of this, right? These were, I believe these were true believers. They, it, there's no reason to doubt it. It says they did believe, but they were zealous for the law. They, but we have no reason to doubt their law, but this is the first hint of a problem. You ever notice how people don't like to come out and say what the problem is? We're afraid to point blank just tell people what the problem is. Generally, we beat about the bush. Really, this is a sign. There, there are different personalities. Some people are more aggressive. Others are passive aggressive. Have you heard this term? Okay. Those who aren't, who aren't aggressive, they, they don't like aggressive people. But to be honest, they're just as aggressive because they, they sneak in there and they kind of stab you in the back is what they do. But passive-aggressive people, uh, they hint around at what the problem is. They don't want to deal with it directly, but they'll make the snide comments and, and the, the subtle attacks. And I think we're all guilty of this at some points in our lives. We don't like conflict. But this attitude really is a violation of Paul's teaching elsewhere. In Ephesians 4, verse 15, he commanded the Ephesians, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head of Christ. Now, what's, there's, there's, a key con, there's two key concepts in that first phrase. Speaking the truth in love. The p obedience to this idea means you have to speak. Sometimes there is a time you have to say something. You don't keep your mouth shut. Because to be honest, the more you bottle it up inside, the more you're just going to do these passive-aggressive attacks. And to be honest, they're all sin, right? And we shouldn't be like that. So if something's really an issue, if you, can't, if you can't show love and get over it and forgive, then you need to say something. But there's a wrong way to say something as well, isn't there? Right? We can, we can get up and we can say something and we can be harsh and we can be cruel. We can be unmerciful. That's a struggle that we all tend to have. We aren't gracious in the way that we respond. But we are told not just to speak the truth, we are told to speak the truth in love, right? And I think so often, as a church, we don't want to deal with issues head on. So what we do is we go around the back door and sin. But we go around the back door and we hint and we stab and we criticize rather than deal with the problems. And that's, that's what's happening here, I believe. This church isn't, they, are, they aren't dealing with the issue head on right away, but they do, they do. So, but we must speak the truth and we must do it in love. And love is not concerned with saving face, with making sure that I look good. Because what is love? Love is ultimately a concern for the benefit of the other person. If I am concerned about what's good for them, I'm going to be willing to sacrifice my image in order to, do, to speak what I need to speak for them, to help them. Love is not worried about being embarrassed by saying something, but it is also not harsh and it is not cruel. 
So these elders, I don't think they, in the end, they beat around the bush. But in verse 21, they do come out and they say what the problem is. Verse 21 says, And they are, these believers who are zealous of the law, they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. So this is, this is the background. These people have heard a report that Paul was teaching the Jews who live among the Gentiles, don't keep the law. It's basically what it comes down to. It starts off here by saying that they are informed of thee. Many, many, many tensions that happen in churches happen because of gossip. Happen because of people going around and talking about people rather than to people. Again, this isn't speaking the truth in love. This is going around the corners and talking about people. And when, when we do that, we're not trying to help. and We're not trying to benefit the other person. We're trying to vent our own frustrations. It's all about self and selfishness. The Bible actually gives us directions for how to deal with problems. Matthew chapter 18, we know it as the church discipline chapter, right? But what's the very first step in, in church discipline in Matthew 18? It's to go and to confront your brother privately, one-on-one. -on -one. If you really love them, you go and you talk to them, rather than going around behind them and, and attacking them behind their back. That has nothing to do with love at all. And a lot of times we couch it in prayer requests, right? But that's not a prayer request. If you haven't loved a person enough to, to approach them, praying for them is, isn't, you're not right there either, okay? But true love confronts the person involved so that things can be made right again. I want the relationship to be restored. So I need to deal with this. Otherwise, it's just going to sit and it's going to eat away like a cancerous sore. It's what we call bitterness, right? We get bitter because we don't deal with issues. We hope they'll go away. We pretend like it's not a big deal. But yet it still spills out of our hearts in, a, in gossip and attacks because we haven't been willing to deal with it. These people, they were informed. They had heard a story about Paul. And I think in many times we are, we are just as guilty as they are of believing that gossip. But they had three complaints. Three complaints that were lodged against Paul. The first one is that Paul was teaching all the Jews to forsake Moses. Okay, That they was teaching them to forsake Moses. That's verse 21 says that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles, first of all, to forsake Moses. Statements like what you would read in Galatians kind of make you think that this might be true. Galatians 4 verse 9 says, But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? And if you read Galatians, you might come away thinking that Paul is absolutely saying you should never keep the law under any circumstances. You should forsake Moses, right? That's their first accusation. But, the, but to be honest, if you understand the book of Galatians and the basic premise of Galatians, that's not what he was teaching. Galatians is about the use of the law for salvation and for sanctification. Paul argued you cannot be saved by doing good works. You cannot be saved by, by keeping the law. That was one of his main premises in the book of Galatians. And we know that salvation is entirely by grace, by, it's a free gift from God that we receive by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That was Paul's main premise in Galatians. But then he goes on and he says, have ye begun by faith and are ye now made perfect by keeping the law? 
This is also in Galatians. So he wasn't just dealing with salvation. He was also dealing with what we call sanctification or the way by which you are changed to be more like Jesus Christ, Christian living after you get saved. That's Paul's purpose in the book of Galatians. It wasn't to exhaustively deal with whether a person should keep any parts of the law at all. Paul did, and then the second accusation is that Paul taught not to circumcise their children. Okay? Third accusation, that Paul taught them not to observe Jewish customs. So the church of Jerusalem had a problem that was brewing behind the scenes. There are obviously some tension because when, when Paul walks in the room because there are people who think that Paul is teaching Jews should not keep the law at all. And how many times do we allow our spats, our harsh words, our disagreements, our failures to create, and our misunderstandings to create tensions within our church? So the first point here is the tension that is in the church. The second thing we want to look at, though, is, is to ask this question. Did Paul compromise his beliefs in what he does in this text? Because Paul goes on, and uh, starting in verse number 22, let's read verse 22 through 26. What is it therefore? The, multi the multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such things, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. Then, here's the key verse, Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. If what Paul actually believed is what we often commonly assumed, why is it that Paul goes into the temple and he does perform the purification rituals that the Jewish law commanded? That's the question. So did Paul compromise everything that he had taught and everything that he had believed in doing this? Verses 22 through 26 show the elders suggesting to Paul a plan of action, but Paul complies with their words. He does what they ask him to do. And the reason is because the elders are afraid of problems with the Jews who are zealous for the law. They are passionate for the law of Moses. According to verse 23, there are four men who have taken a vow, I believe is most likely a Nazarite vow, and the conclusion of their Nazarite vow would involve shaving their heads. Because you remember Samson? Samson, the big guy with the long hair, and uh, Delilah, okay? And Sam, Samson, the reason he had long hair is because he had taken a Nazarite vow before God. From birth, he was, he was given to God with this Nazarite vow. That's what these men have done, I believe. And at the end or the conclusion of their vow, what they would do is a Nazarite would shave his head, would bring it to the temple, and they would burn the hair. Okay, that's how this thing was concluded. It was a ceremony of purification after the vow. And the elders suggest that Paul joins in with this. That Paul would join them and he would even pay for their offerings that they would bring along with them. So that everybody would know, this is their hope, that Paul wasn't against the law of Moses. And verse 26 clearly indicates that Paul does what they suggested. Okay? So if you read any of Paul's epistles, any of his writings, you know already that Paul did not believe you needed to keep the law. That, there's a key word there, needed. So to understand Paul's full teaching, we've got to kind of take a survey 
uh, an overall glance at what he taught in other passages to, to answer this question, did Paul compromise his beliefs? In Galatians, let's, uh, let's go and turn there because there's a few verses here. Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> Galatians 5 and verse number 6. This has been one of my memory verses for the past couple months, just trying to meditate on this truth. In Galatians 5, verses 5 and 6, let's go and read both of those together. It says, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. That verse is basically saying that we long for the day that we will be made perfect before God. We hope for righteousness by faith. But, verse 6 says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Our salvation, our sanctification, they are not accomplished by circumcision or the works of the law, as Galatians teaches. But what really changes a man is faith, and then faith acts in love. Faith which worketh by love. What is the whole keeping of the law in, in the Bible? It's to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love thy neighbor as yourself. If we love, our faith manifests itself by love, we will treat people right. If our faith manifests itself by our love, we will worship God and God alone. Faith which worketh by love changes a man. So Paul's teaching here, though, is that circumcision doesn't avail anything. It doesn't produce anything. You're, the works of the law do not make you more holy before God. In verse 15, he goes on and he says, but if he, actually chapter 6, verse 15, sorry. Chapter 6, verse 15, says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy upon our... Sorry, am I looking at the right verse here? I'm looking, I'm reading verse 16. Duh, okay. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Almost the exact same wording here. Circumcision doesn't avail anything. You have to be renewed. You have to be transformed into a new creature to be holy before God. And that happens in Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, Paul contrasts and tells us what the law cannot do. And one of those things is it can't justify us before God. It can't sanctify us. It doesn't give us the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't guarantee us an inheritance with God. That's all in chapter 3. So it would seem that Paul seems to be saying to the Jews, you should not keep the law, right? Is that what he's saying? That, that's what it would seem, right? Paul also taught in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's turn there, 1 Corinthians 7. We can do a little bit of flipping in this section. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. In order to understand Paul's teaching, you have to look at all of it, okay? In, in, in context, you have to understand the whole teaching, not just one bit and piece of it. But Paul also taught that a Jew should not stop being a Jew. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 18. It says, Is a man called or saved, being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any man uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. So Paul taught that if you're a Jew, be a Jew. Act like a Jew. If you're a Gentile, be a Gentile. Don't act like the sinful Gentiles, but be a Gentile. That's what he's saying in this passage. And you take that in context with what Paul actually did himself. Paul did keep parts of the law, did he not? At times, there were times when he kept 
the law. In Acts 18, verse 18, we, we talked about this before. It says, And after this, Paul tarried there a good while, and then took his leave of his brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Sancria. Why? For he had a vow. Paul had taken a vow. So Paul was eager to reach Jerusalem by Pentecost as well. Why? Why did he need to get there by Pentecost? To celebrate Pentecost. That's the reason. Okay, so Paul did keep parts of the law, but the issue here is that word necessary, like I said at the beginning. Paul even had Timothy circumcised, who was a half Jew. He wasn't full Jew. But why did he have Timothy circumcised? It says in, uh, in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, that he circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul did this because he knew that the Jews would have a problem with Timothy, and he wanted to avoid that problem. Paul's philosophy is summed up in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20. He says, And unto the Jews I became a Jew, that I may gain the Jews. And to them that are under the law is under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Paul's main idea is among the Jews, I'm going to act like a Jew. I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to do the Jewish things, the cultural things. But among the Gentiles, I am not under obligation to keep the law. Neither are they, by the way. And so I'm, I don't have to do those things when I'm among, among the Gentiles. A summary of this by Daryl Bach in his commentary. He said, Jewish believers can continue to live by Jewish practices, provided it does not compromise either salvation or association or outreach to Gentiles. The key to understanding Paul's view is this, is that it was not necessary to keep the law for salvation or for Christian living. But if it is viewed as just a part of being Jewish, Jewish culture, Jews could keep the law. If Paul had viewed this as adding to salvation or even sanctification, he would have rejected it. Galatians 2 verses 4 through 5 says, and that and that because of false brethren, unaware brought in, we came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. Meaning he didn't give them any room, any wiggle room. He did not allow these false teachers to come in. That the truth of the gospel might, be, might continue. Paul was not going to compromise the truth of the gospel. And really when you think of Paul's teaching in the book of, of Romans, Romans 14 through 16. It's, an issue, it's a disagreement between men who won't eat meats or won't eat certain foods and men who will, and between men who keep certain holy days and don't. And what does Paul tell them to do? Receive them, but not to disputation. Meaning, Jewish believers, you should accept them. And that's the whole premise of, of the book of Romans is Jewish-Gentile relations in the church. Jewish, Gentiles don't reject the Jews because they keep the Sabbaths and things like that. Because as long as they don't hold those things for their salvation or for their sanctification, don't reject them. But you are to receive them and you are to love them. You are to forbear with them. So what was Paul's solution to this problem in the church? In Acts chapter 21, going back to Acts ch chapter 21. Because Paul believed that it was not necessary to keep the law, but it was also not necessary to not keep the law. Okay, he did, His liberty was not to be used as a weapon. He was willing to forbear with these people. Paul is willing to curb his freedom for the sake of liberty. That's what he's willing to do. 
And really, when we talk about freedom, everybody's like, I should have freedom to do this, this, and this, right? But the honest truth is you also have freedom to not do this, this, and this, okay? You don't have to do it just because you have the freedom to do it. There are some things that they may be all right, but they may hurt our other brothers and sisters in Christ. I have the freedom to not do those things, and I shouldn't be judged for acting on that freedom as well. But just because something is allowed doesn't mean we must do it, doesn't mean it's beneficial. Now, I've heard, I've heard people talking like this, like they have an obligation to act out their freedom. You don't have an obligation to act out in that way. You shouldn't be a hypocrite. That's true. But it isn't hypocrisy to choose to, do some, to not do something because you love other people. That's not being a hypocrite, right? Paul is practicing what we call in the Bible forbearance. Forbearance means patience, means self-control, restraint, or tolerance. The biblical definition is to endure something unpleasant or difficult on behalf of somebody else. I'm going to endure something I don't want to do, I don't even believe I have to do, because I love other people. That's the key here. It is choosing to do things you don't have to do out of love for somebody else. At the root of this forbearance is a selflessness. I'm willing to put aside myself to honor and respect and love other people. It is a love for other people. It is a love for God. And we are told that this is the way that we should view each other. Colossians chapter 3. Let's turn there real quick. Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 12, says, put on, therefore, as the elect of God. So these are things that we should be putting on into our lives. We should be acting like. Holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. What's the first word of verse 13? Forbearing one another. Earlier last year, we preached on the one another's of scripture. One of those is we are to forbear one another. And... To forgive one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. You want the solution to tension in the church? It's forbearance and forgiving. Forbearance and love towards other brothers and sisters in Christ. Ephesians 4 verse 2 says, With all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. Forbearance is also something that God does. Romans 2 verse 4 says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering. The lost man who rejects Jesus Christ, they are despising God's forbearance. What that means is he's being patient with them. He is loving and he is giving them time. He is longsuffering. And so it is an attribute of God and it is an attribute that we should have as his people. Forbearance is at the root of Paul's teaching. In both Romans and in Galatians, he teaches that concept. Galatians 5 verse 13 says, for brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Don't use your liberty as a weapon. Use it as an opportunity to serve other people. So the wisdom of this solution may be doubted. Paul gets arrested in Acts chapter 21. So we can doubt whether the advice he received was all that great, but we cannot deny Paul's attitude, his heart. 
His solution to the issue of tension and disunity in the church is forbearance and love. And honestly, if we all had that kind of a heart and we wanted what was best for other people, that put up with other people's weaknesses, a love that overlooked faults, then we wouldn't allow ourselves to gripe, to complain, to gossip, to slam, and to criticize others in the church. We would be doing whatever was possible to keep peace between our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, Romans 12, 18, if at all be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now let's all stand, head bowed, eyes closed. I want to close with the main theme verse to this message in Acts chapter 21. Sorry if I can get there again. (laughs) The theme verse is verse 22. What is it therefore? The multitudes must needs come together. The church is a multitude, but we must needs come together. Paul had a heart that he was willing to sacrifice for the sake of unity in the body of Christ. Maybe you're thinking back over the way that you've had issues with other people and how you've responded to those things. We've been guilty of gossip, attacks, complaints. Rather than dealing with these problems in love the way that we ought to biblically, are we willing to forbear and to put up with other people's weaknesses? Time of invitation is a time to make things right with God. And so I ask you to if you're willing to do that, to spend some time talking to God about that. And don't forget the uh, budget meeting after the evening service tonight. The deacons will be back by the doors to hand you guys the financial reports so you can take a look at those before we get into the meeting tonight. Derek, do you mind closing us in prayer today?